witches and welcome to witch space i'm gemini and i'm scorpio and today we have with us i am very excited mara starling who is the author of the last book that we just did yes people should know everything about welsh witchcraft thank you mara for being here oh thank you so much for inviting me on i'm excited to talk to you so the first thing i want to do before i go into like the regular questions that we have to that we're going to ask is I want to tell you how I discovered you and the conversation that I had with Gemini about you. So there I am on TikTok and, you know, you get on witch talk and the witches are very serious and I get it, right? We want to be taken seriously. People are very serious. And all of a sudden this woman pops up like from behind a bush or a tree or something. And I went, Oh, because I thought, what's this going to be about? And of course I look at all the hashtags and I'm like, Oh, witch. And everything out of your mouth was so professional. Like it was just opposite. It was just a great juxtaposition. Here you are being really silly, coming out of a bush. And then you have these wonderful things. And I'm following you through this forest. And I don't want it to end. I don't want this TikTok to end. So anytime that I would see you, it was the same thing. Or like you'd start talking and then all of a sudden you've hidden somewhere or you've fallen somewhere. Or one that you did recently, it wasn't that recent, but you were standing near stones. And you were talking about the importance and then you turn around and you go, but not these, these aren't important. Meanwhile, you know what everybody's doing. I'm looking past you at the stones. So when you said that, I'm like, of course she did this, Uh, of course, because this is the joke. And I love that because I feel sometimes like we take ourselves so seriously. Did you do that on purpose? Did you come out with the mindset of I'm going to, when I talk to people or educate people, I want them to have fun with it or did it just happen? Oh, it kind of just happened. I remember when when I first got onto TikTok, I will admit um, my reasoning for joining TikTok was rather uh, petty and horrible. Um, I remember it was back in about 2020, I was scrolling through TikTok and I thought to myself, there are witches on here. I wonder what they're saying. And specifically, I wanted to know what are people saying about Wales, about Welsh traditions of magic and mythology. And so I just Googled, um, not Googled, that's just the term I use for searched. I searched on TikTok for Welsh goddess just to see what would come up. And um, one of the first videos that came up was of this uh, probably very lovely Canadian woman, poor thing, who was um, talking about Rhiannon. And Rhiannon is a very captivating character in our mythology. She's glorious, and Stevie Nicks wrote a song all about her. But unfortunately, there's a lot of like misinformation mm-hmm. about her out there. So Rhiannon is a character that's associated with like sovereignty, magic to an extent, the other world, and horses, of course. Um, but this this TikToker was talking about how Rhiannon is um, the goddess of witchcraft and the moon. And I remember thinking, no, the bloody hell she's not. And so I, I went on there and I decided I'm going to start my own little videos and start talking about Welsh stuff just for fun. Because I was in the process at that point of writing Welsh witchcraft, um, my book. And I'd already gotten a publishing deal. So I, I didn't, uh, there's this misconception. I love clearing up this misconception that I did TikTok first and mm-hmm. got asked to write the book, but it was actually the other way around. I wrote the book, sent it into my publisher and then started TikTok and it just blew up out of nowhere. So it was very fortunate for me because it meant more people bought it. But also um, it was just a passion. It was something I was doing out of boredom within, at that point, we were still living in lockdowns and such. So it was really fun during my daily walks to go out and just make these videos. And I remember initially 
I was a little taken aback by how comical people found me because I've always considered myself very serious, very, very serious. Mm-hmm. And um, then I was making these videos and I couldn't, I've got a performer background. So um, I'm used to performing and being theatrical and being a bit larger than life. And I think some of that came out when I was on TikTok mm-hmm. by accident. And then I just dove into it because people enjoyed it. So I remember I was talking to my partner who is my film filmer, the person who records my videos. Um, And I was saying to him, the vibe I want to go for is essentially, imagine you're watching some like documentary on history on BBC or something, but the the person doing the documentary, the person who is presenting it is this really weird, wacky, fat trans woman who is off her meds entirely. (laughs) And so, yeah, I I just went for it like that. (laughs) The vibe is impeccable, achieved, absolutely. Yeah, I was trying to explain it to Gemini. I was like, have you seen this person? And she was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, just see it. I can't explain it. Just, yeah. And, and then I just, you know, I get the TikToks. She was like, oh, this one. Oh, this one. Oh, this one. <laughs> yes. And I'm a bit like a venereal disease because once you've brushed up against me, I come up everywhere then. So once you've seen me on TikTok jumping out of bushes telling you about Welsh witches, next thing you'll know, you'll talk, you'll see me on Facebook or something in a meme talking about how Welsh women curse with their tits. So I do get everywhere. I just pop up everywhere. So so you'll see more of me now, now that you've found them. I love it. So I want to talk about the book and I want to talk about how great the exercises were. We're big fans of books that have exercises because it's just another way. And we talked about annotation in the last one, right? The last episode. So it's all about how do you get into a book and exercises are a great way, especially if you want to learn something to actually start doing things. So since you say this is something people should do regularly, we're going to turn it on you. Who are you? What are you most proud of? And what labels do you carry with you day by day? Ooh, so who am I? Big, massive question. Um, I don't really know. I'm just some strange little Welsh woman who grew up in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I grew up in a place called Aberfrau, and my locality is quite core to my being. It's quite core to who I am. I take great pride in the place that I'm from and in the ground that I walk upon daily. And I think that's a huge part of my identity. Um, And I think the reason it's a huge part of my identity nowadays is because I grew up with this feeling that I wasn't allowed to be proud of who I was. Um, Being, you know, a, a very obviously queer person growing up in a very rural part of the country, I grew up constantly feeling like there was something wrong with me. And I often tell people there was an element of my upbringing where I didn't feel like I was allowed to be proud to be Welsh specifically. Um, So nowadays I wear that Welsh flag with pride and I like bounce around in my massive Welsh dragon dress and stuff and uh, try and really like reclaim it because I spent so long being somewhat ashamed of it and being somewhat feeling like I couldn't um, embrace the fact that I was Welsh because I didn't really fit in with the people that I grew up around. And I spent a lot of my youth thinking, oh, I can't wait to leave. I can't wait to move away to some big city somewhere, maybe in England or something, and um, just you know get away from the the peering eyes of rurality mm-hmm. because when you live in a rural place, you know everyone everyone knows who you are and everyone has an opinion about who you are. And so it was exciting idea in my mind to leave and go somewhere more urban that like people don't care like I live currently in a a very small city it would probably be considered a town in most countries but it is a city and it is a weird experience 
not knowing who my neighbors are. I don't know who lives next door there. And it's so strange because I grew up in a street where the entire stretch of my street was my family. And so every little thing you did was was judged, was watched, was looked at. But then as I grew up, um, because I lived in such a rural area, you know, a lot of queer people, when they grow up, they find community among other queer people because they go to gay bars or they go to clubs, they go to all these kind of things. Usually there's like a gay lesbian alliance in their school or something that they can join. And But I didn't have any of that. I didn't have a local community. The nearest like queer bar of any sort was over an hour away by the bus and it was just impossible. So I found refuge among pagans um, or as my lovely mentor would say, I joined the lunatic fringe and I went on it like hard. Um, So one of my teachers uh, from school, from primary school, so from when I was like age five to age 11, one of my primary school teachers was a witch and she became one of my primary mentors, Julie. She's she's gone now. She's dead. But rest in peace, lovely little lettuce. But she was one of my biggest mentors for the longest time. And then I also met Christopher Hughes, who is the chief of the Anglesey Druid Order. He's also an author. He's got wonderful books. He lived down the road from me. So I ended up going to his for tea every now and then and meeting them for rituals and such. And I had this really strange upbringing really from the age of about 13, 14, where I just was prancing around meadows and woodlands with witches and druids and they were my community and I felt so accepted by them. So the labels of witch and Welsh and, you know, all of these things that I attach to myself nowadays, pagan and all this, they really mean something deep to me because and profound to me because they saved my life and they made it so that I could feel proud of who I was. And it was via paganism and witchcraft that I accepted that I could be proud of being Welsh because being Welsh meant more than liking Welsh cakes and farming and football and rugby. It meant that we have this like amazing tradition of magic, this mythology. So who am I? That kind of covers it, I think. Um, What am I most proud of? I'm most proud of the fact that I guess I'm just here and I'm doing what I love. Uh, I remember a few years back, I graduated university. And I remember telling myself when I graduated, because I I trained in an area that I'm not working in currently. Um, And I knew at the end of my third year of university, I knew I didn't want to work in the sector of what I trained in. Um, So when I left university, I wrote a letter to myself and I opened it a couple of years back. And in the letter, I had a career goal in there. And underneath career goal, I just wrote, I want to inspire people to be the most magical that they can be. And in turn, inspire myself to be the most magical I can be. And I like to think that I've achieved that now with writing the book, with building the community I've built online and such. So I'm most proud of the fact that I'm still here. I stuck around and I managed to reach that goal. And then the labels I wear with pride are, of course, Welsh, witch, woman, and also pagan and such. So, yeah, I hope that answers the question. I I know I've been blabbering for a while. (laughs) No, it was perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Did you want to say anything, Gemini, before? Sometimes we have conversations with people and it's like, you know, oh, this is very interesting. Let's talk about it. I just feel I we're having a magical moment right now. I don't really know how to describe this. The vibes are impeccable. We have lived such different lives, and yet I relate so heavily to all of the things that you're saying, and it's so 
powerful, I guess, for you to be sharing what is your personal story and have it still hit so hard that that I think is, is part of why we wanted you on the podcast in the first place, right? Like I'm not a Welsh witch and I'm probably not going to do Welsh witchcraft, but your book and your story is so impactful in general. Thank you. I'm glad it's impactful in some way. And like I said, my goal was always just to inspire people in some capacity. So I hope that that's kind of what that's doing in that regard. And then, of course, you talk about in the book that you also want more Welsh witches to have the opportunity to you know, practice in your culture. Um, do you see a move in that direction? Are you sort of watching that develop now with the book release or was it sort of even before that? Oh, I do. I do sense a change because when I grew up, when I was growing up in Wales, um, I remember I used to have lots of conversations with Christopher and with Julie and with all these different pagans and witches that I was in community with there. I remember having so many conversations about how a lot of people turn to somewhere far beyond our shores to inspire them and inspire their craft, which always baffled me because if you go to Australia, Canada, America, suddenly people are turning to us and they're looking for inspiration in us. They're looking at the Celtic nations and Celtic practices, which is us, which is where we are. And yet here in the actual land where this Celtic kind of practice was born and is still living because it's not you know some dead culture that passed away we still have a Celtic culture our language is still Celtic and we still celebrate the Celtic aspects of our culture quite profoundly so when I look at the fact that we have all this on our doorstep that inspires so many people across the world and yet Doreen down the street who classes herself as a witch is praying to the goddess Isis and is practicing hermetic magic from Egypt it made me sad because, you know, it's fair enough to, and I have to be careful when I talk about this because I do offend people sometimes. I think it's very fair to draw inspiration from whatever fuels you and sparks joy in you, so long as it's, you know, appropriate to do so and it's not in any way insensitive and uh, verging on being appropriative and horrible. But, you know, so long as it's inspiring and it's done with respect and reverence, fine. But at the same time, I always had this tinge of sadness that, our myths, our legends, our practices, our magic was being ignored in favor of Isis or Zeus or, you know, the Norse gods, Thor and such. And it was always quite jarring to be stood, say, in the middle of a field or a forest with a group of witches um, doing a ritual at the spring equinox. And suddenly they're like, we're going to call to the gods now. And they're calling to the gods of like Scandinavia or something, it was always a bit, we have our own. Why are we calling others from across the sea? We have our own right here. And it's why I was ever so grateful to meet Christopher, because I will admit I was one of those. I was one of those who was calling to other gods. You know, I was the type who was besotted at one point with the Greek mythology and such. And um, I would kind of cherry pick and choose all sorts of different gods and goddesses that I thought were cool because I was a teenager and it was exciting in my eyes. But when I met Christopher and the Anglesey Druid Order, their practices were rooted in the native um, concepts that we have here in our, so in our soil. And it was quite life-changing because I knew about these things. I knew about the Mabinogi. 
and Welsh mythology because I grew up with it. You know, I grew up going to pantomime play versions of these stories, watching my teachers recite the stories with passion. I remember one of my first days at primary school, I said to my teachers, I love mermaids and fairies and witches. And they brought me a book on Welsh folklore to read because Welsh folklore is full of mermaids and fairies and witches. So I was so excited to read about that stuff. And it was almost like when Christopher pointed out to me, we have our own magic and our own myths. You don't have to look all the way that way over the sea to gain inspiration for which gods to call to. They're right here. We have some on our doorstep and here they are. I remember feeling really silly because I know these names. I know Rhiannon and Ariandrod, Keridwen, Sheikhaugafes, Gwynapnirth. These are characters that I played as on the playground and, you know, I had so many uh, dreams about as a kid and such. And there they were, again, being presented this time as gods that are still very much alive. And it really inspired me and pushed me. But l- recently, to answer your question, because I'm going a bit on a tangent, recently I have noticed that it is shifting and people are becoming much more interested in, in more local native beliefs rather than looking further afield. And I think it's a shift that's happening across all of modern paganism and witchcraft, because I'm noticing that, you know, even uh, across the ocean in in America, um, where a lot of the diaspora now live, people, instead of turning to, say, appropriating native or indigenous culture, they're turning to their ancestry, they're turning to where they came from. And it seems to be that things are shifting now where people are looking instead at their local folk beliefs or their ancestral beliefs and looking towards something that is deeper to them in their own soul and body rather than something that just looks cool or feels cool. And and I love that. I love that that's kind of the direction things seem to be heading. (laughs) I also think here in the U.S., for a long time there was i mean we always call them the old guard the people yeah. that would tell you you're wrong you mm-hmm. have to do it like this you have to do it like that so i think that people have just started to saying why am i listening to people like why am i not just following my instinct and it's great when people can read your book and they can see how you say you go back right to what you know to what's yours to what you feel you just said it right um and i think that gives which is permission then to go, oh, wait a minute, I can do something else. And really to tell people who are saying you're doing it wrong. Well, you know what? F you, it's not your practice. It's mine. And, you know, um, but I think for a long time, at least here, I think it was just very much, you know, people telling people what to do. Um, And I also loved as a part of your book where you said a lot of people are drawn to your gods, whether they are Welsh or not, people are Welsh or not. And And you said, you know, and we welcome everybody. And that made me feel really good because early on I started, I started working with Caridwin and I had somebody say to me, oh, but she's not your background. Like you really shouldn't. And I remember feeling like I can't, I remember feeling really sad. And then I finally said, no, this is silly. I feel like if we weren't cool, I would know it by now. Like, I think I'm trusting the relationship I'm trying to build with her versus somebody else coming in and telling me no. And this was years ago. So, you know, I didn't listen to him, but yeah. Yeah. And I think the reason I put that in is because it is a question that I get asked a lot. It's like, I'm glad that people are more mindful nowadays to the ideas of cultural appropriation and such. And they're willing to ask the question because that's, I think, one of the biggest things we could do to combat, um, you know, being 
insensitive in any way is ask the question ask is this okay is this insensitive of me to do and of course there's no one person who can speak for a whole culture so you will find people who have different opinions but it's always been my opinion that we as Welsh people don't own these things they're not ours to hoard and to control we're custodians we're caretakers of them and you know they are part of the culture that we've built up they're part of the very living culture that we have right now and so there are times when I ask you know respect them and try and maybe listen to the native voices when you can and uplift that kind of idea of really staying true to who they truly are but at the same time I don't like this move that there is lately um, especially with Welsh things with like Celtic things in general of saying that because someone is in America or in Australia that they can't commune with these gods and goddesses because in my eyes that's just not true because these gods and these goddesses they have transcended now what um, the borders of Wales and they've inspired people for generations across the world and you know the reason that happened is because we moved the Welsh people moved there were times you know especially in the 1800s and 1700s when poor farmers and miners moved to different parts of America and Australia in order to find work because it was just not working here and when they did they took their stories with them they took their myths they took their legends they took their songs and they shared them. I have an entire book somewhere over here on my shelves, um, all about how uh, there was a group of Welsh um, settlers who moved over to America to try and build a better life for themselves in a region somewhere in the Appalachian Mountains. And when they did so, they came across um, some, I think it was Cherokee tribe, and they mingled with the Cherokee tribe. And there was uh, this almost exchange of stories where aspects of the folk belief of those tribes that they came into contact with started integrating into the aspects of folk belief of the Welsh. And that happened across the world. It started happening where folklore started to be altered and changed by the fact that the Welsh were moving and giving their stories. And then you also have the fact that when the Welsh kind of manuscripts, the mythologies that a lot of these gods and goddesses that we glean come from started being translated into English, they then started inspiring fiction and, and fantasy. So you know, these manuscripts were translated into English in the 1800s. And ever since then, they've inspired things like Tolkien and Game of Thrones, and they still continue to. So it's almost like to limit it and say, no, only we can have these is, is quite damaging, I think. And I'm a huge um, supporter of the idea that Celtic culture in general, and this is where I ruffle feathers a lot, Celtic culture in general has absolutely nothing to do with blood and DNA. It's culture, it's lived. So you cannot be born into it, you have to live it. And the way to live a culture is to sing our songs, to tell our stories, to eat our food, to understand what it means today to be Welsh or Irish or Scottish or whichever Celtic culture you want to look at. And, you know, the idea that it's all about blood and DNA can get very dangerous because um, it, it can lead to conversations that, that are quite shaky and scary. And I don't like that because we have Welsh people here in Wales that were not born in Wales and have no Celtic blood, quote unquote, 
but they're still very much Welsh because they speak our language and they live in Wales and they interact with Welsh culture daily because being Welsh or being Celtic is about culture. It's about life. It's about actually being in the lived culture of it. And so to me, so long as the culture is approached with respect, with reverence, and with a feeling of understanding that it's from a living culture, I don't understand why it's so wrong for someone 3,000 miles away to sing a song in, in reverence of Keritwen. I think it's beautiful. <laughs> Incredibly cold take. Eugenics is bad. And if you think everything is blood, you might want to like question that a little bit. Exactly. <laughs> um, one of the things I want to talk about, because the way you speak about this, you're clearly an expert. And I want to talk to you a little bit about being on um, Young, Welsh and Pretty Religious, <laughs> because I thought that that was such an interesting. Um, how do I want to say this? I find that a lot of people use the term religious to describe being Christian. And you clearly are an expert in your religion. You're on this show about being pretty religious. Did the production make you feel valid in using the term religious? Did you have any trouble like owning the term religious in this context? Because obviously to an outsider, yes, you're, you're very religious. But I know that sometimes that word can be kind of loaded. Yeah, I'm, I'm oh gosh. I tend to ruffle feathers with this opinion too, because I do class what I do as a religion. It's my religious life. And I know a lot of people are in that kind of mental space right now with, well, no, I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. It's different. And to me, um, and, and it is personal taste. If you don't want to call yourself religious, absolutely don't call yourself religious. And it's never, um, I, I don't think, I'm never trying to push the way that I see it onto anyone else. Mm -hmm. But to me, religion is uh, much more far reaching than Christianity. And I think sometimes it can be more damaging for us to almost push this idea that religion only really fits onto things like Christianity and that it only makes us think of Christianity. It can be quite damaging to other cultures, other religions and other faiths. And the thing I do, so... I do struggle to define what I do. And I struggle a lot with that documentary as well when we were doing it, um, because I do kind of see my witchcraft and my religion as connected yet separate. They are connected in very intimate ways, but they're also very much separate. You know, sometimes I will do things within my witchcraft that I wouldn't necessarily want to do as part of my religion uh, and vice versa. So within my religious side, I'm very much devoted in, in every uh, definition of the word to the gods of my land. And that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm bending my knee and looking at them as if they're these all-knowing, all-powerful gods that are constantly judging me. It's much more complicated than that. And um, I feel as though my devotion to them is important to my everyday life. Because my devotion to the gods is my devotion to my culture, is the devotion to my ancestors and the devotion to the land that I walk upon every single day. And to me, it's hard for me to understand how I could walk in this world as an animist, as a pagan, as a witch, without being that much in reverence to my gods. You know, I love my gods. And sometimes I get... Um, 
weird looks for saying that, that I love the gods, I love them deeply. And they are so important and integral to not only my everyday life, but my culture that I grew up in. And, you know, everyone knows the, the names of the gods of Wales in Wales, even if they don't see them as gods. They're still hugely important national characters that we, we all grow up learning about in school, if we're lucky enough to grow up in a school that actually pushes the Welsh culture, because... Welsh culture is, you know, under attack a lot of the time. Um, so if you're lucky enough to grow up in a in a school that has that push to push the Welsh culture, then we do grow up knowing these these characters, or as I come to know them now, gods. And there is this this belief uh, in academia um, because I do kind of straddle the line. I'm not an academic. I'm not a scholar, but I'm academic adjacent, I always say, because, you know, I do study these things quite intensely, um, but I'm first and foremost a pagan, a witch, <laughs> and uh, that can sometimes contradict a lot of what's going on in academia. So if you were to go to an academic scholar who is studying the Mabinaki, unless that academic is somewhat pagan, in nature, they would usually argue with you about whether or not these gods are actually gods, mm -hmm. because um, our first, you know, all the information that we glean about the gods of Wales, none of it comes from archaeological evidence of pre-Christian Celtic worship. None of it comes from any evidence that there were any, you know, shrines to Rhiannon or Keritwen or anything like that. There is no evidence whatsoever to prove that any of these gods, as we know them in the myths, existed pre-Christianity. It's all theorized that perhaps they are the remnants or the echoes of a pre-Christian culture that have been carried on into this medieval Christian literature. And so a lot of academics are very much against the idea of seeing them as gods, because if they are gods, then they are probably only just gods and that it's just the echoes of older gods that we see in characters like Trianon. But I see them as gods because to me, and this is where... I and the academics differ because, you know, the academics are often not theologians, they're often anthropologists or, or um, you know, they're looking at the literature, so they're looking specifically at it through the lens of literature, so they're not looking at it through a theological lens. And so when I think of them as gods, what I mean is that they have been integral to carrying the culture of Wales, to ensuring that our culture, our language and our identity has remained alive despite being put through all sorts of trials and tribulations from the English, to like to, to say it without any tact. No, it's okay. <laughs> uh, as an Irish woman, fuck the English. Yeah, <laughs> I'll happily exactly. say that. Sorry to our English listeners. Like, I love you guys, but come on. The imperialism was not good. Absolutely. And, you know, the suppression of our culture and our language was counteracted by our bardic tradition, which was all about storytelling and poetry. And the core characters that were important to this bardic tradition were Peritwen, Taliesin, Rhiannon, and Ariadnrod and all these. So without them, our language might not have carried on the way it did. And Christopher Hughes says something beautifully. It's like, there's no evidence that there was ever a pre-Christian shrine to Keridwen, nor is there evidence that there was a post-Christian shrine to Keridwen. But there was a shrine to Keridwen because the shrine to Keridwen was the lips of the bards. The bards sang her songs every single day. They believed that their inspiration came from her. And, you know, the Welsh language was conceived and created to be a language of poetry. It was literally created from common Brythonic 
by court bards and magicians to be a language where people could express their poetry in a shared language. So without these characters, these gods, as I see them, our culture and language wouldn't exist. And to me, that's pretty deity in my eyes. And then beyond that, they have been carried through to now. They are important. You know, if you look at the Welsh Bardic tradition, these gods or these characters in the Welsh Bardic tradition, as academics would say, they rear their heads in the very distant past, but then they carry on and you can go to like the 1700s, the 1800s, and you'll find literary references to them all the way through to today. And they've survived and they've carried our culture for so long that they're so integrally important to who we are as Welsh people today. And so for that, they are gods in my eyes. But also, there might not have been a, sh a shrine to Keritwen in the ancient past. There might not have been a shrine to Rhiannon in the ancient past. But there is a shrine to Keritwen now on there, on my <laughs> altar. So she's kind of a goddess now through the process of apotheosis. She is now a goddess. And there are shrines to Keritwen and Rhiannon and Ariantrod and Gwynapnirth across the world. So nobody can deny that they're not gods now, even if they're not back then. So to me, the religious aspect of my life is really important because it's a huge integral part of my culture. And I don't know what else to call the level of devotion I have to the culture that I grew up in, the characters or gods of the culture and the very land that I walk upon without saying it's a religion. And Young Welsh and Pretty Religious was a lot of fun. It was it was a lot of fun. I took um, the camera crew up to this glorious burial mound called Trevignath, which is on Caerguppy up in North Wales, a little island that's just off the coast of the island I grew up on, um, and a small in Anglesey. And we did a ritual at the, I think it was the spring equinox. Uh, it was a while back now, and I've done a few things like that. And I'm always happy to do these things, to, to go on television and make a fool of myself because it's a chance it's another chance to talk about this stuff and to sing the praises of the gods and sing the praises of the land that I grew up on again and it's magic and share that um I did one recently with um channel four called trip hazard and it was a funny little documentary it was meant to be like a travel series but comedic it was run by Rosie Jones who is a comedian who has cerebral palsy and she was going around the country saying, what is accessible? Like, where can disabled travelers go in the UK? Uh, and she came to Anglesey to get the witch experience with me. And it was glorious. I love doing these things. And specifically as well, I love doing them in Welsh. Because lately I've been working really close with Espedwarek, which is the Welsh television network here in Wales. Um, and BBC Radio Cymru, which is the BBC Wales' radio station. So I've been doing a lot of radio and TV stuff in Welsh as well. And I think sharing it as a religion can make it more, um, I suppose, not appealing, but at least more normal among the people. There is a debate about whether or not we should make witchcraft and paganism more mainstream or normal. But to me, I want to just be left alone to do whatever I want to do. And the only way we can do that is to gain some level of acceptance. So I kind of need people to see that I'm not, you know, sacrificing their lambs behind their sheds on midsummer. I'm doing something quite different <laughs> and singing the praises of my land. So, yeah, it is important in my eyes to see it as a religion, I suppose. But not I know not everyone will agree with me on that. I do. I love that. I That was a, a journey. I think I've been on on the podcast. I no longer remember what I say on the podcast because we've been doing this <laughs> for so long. But, um, you know, for me, it, it has become really important to say I am religious. Um, and at least, you know, here 
it, that is partly because religious was a term for sort of regular air quotes religions. And you're right. I think that we need to have this space to also be a regu- an air quotes regular religion. Um, you talk about doing a lot of Welsh TV. And this is another thing I want to talk about because your YouTube is all about Welsh language and um, etymology, which I think is so interesting. Was this, is it because of Welsh? Is it because you're bilingual? Is it your passion for words? Is it the nature of the language itself? Like what motivated you to sort of do that additional work on top of getting the religious aspect out as well? Oh gosh, probably pettiness again. Um, Love pettiness. Yeah, I think I was getting... (laughs) I was getting tired of, um, and I know this will sound awful and people might hate me for this, but I was getting tired of hearing, you know, Mabon and Caridwen and Rhiannon and all these kind of um, butchered pronunciations. My favourite one is always, always. Um, so we have a god called Gwyn Apneith, who is kind of seen as the god of liminality. He's a psychopomp. He's the king of the other world. And I remember once I found a, uh, I think it was a YouTube channel that was run by someone who classed themselves as a devotee of Gwyn Apneith, but they pronounced his name Gwyn Apneuds. Yikes. Twin app nudes. (laughs) (laughs) The funniest thing about that is that it sounded almost like doing the nudes to me, um, which in Welsh translates to stealing your nudes. So (laughs) it was like, this is fun. And so part of it was trying to be helpful, was trying to say, you know, a big part of Welsh culture and Welsh magic in general is the language. Our language is embedded in what it means to be Welsh. um, And it is a language that has been suppressed for a very long time. And I was fortunate enough to grow up bilingual with Welsh as my first language. So if I can help people connect to their gods or connect to the spirit of these gods better, even by just teaching them how to pronounce the name in the way that we pronounce it. Mm -hmm. Um, And luckily people have been really open to it and have enjoyed it and not been mad at me for being so pedantic. But I I don't think it is being pedantic, really, because you know, it's their names and they mean something quite deep. And the other thing that's fortunate to me as a, as a Welsh speaker is that, firstly, that I can understand the words in the language quite naturally. So when it comes to the etymology of the words, I can kind of see it, like, without having to look up mm-hmm. etymology online, like Gwynapnir. Well, I know that Gwyn in the Welsh language means white, but it also means holy and it also means blessed. And then ap is just our mutated version of mab, which is sun. So and then nirth. So the only part of that name that I didn't know was nirth, because nirth is an old Welsh word that means mist, but it's also the name of another god, nirth or nodens. And once I'd figured out nirth, oh, then I, I can see quite clearly Gwynap nirth, the blessed son of mist. And it's like, oh, there we go. I can get an etymological understanding of that name without having to look anything up. But I'm also fortunate to be able to read Welsh. And there are, um, so one of the things I said in my book was there's not that much information about Welsh mythology and such out there in the world. What I meant was there's not that much information about Welsh mythology and magic in English. There's a lot in Welsh. There's a lot that has been written in Welsh. And there are authors like Ivor Williams and Brindley Roberts who just have not translated a lot of their work into English. So I'm fortunate to be able to go back, look at that and go, 
what were they saying? What were they writing about and doing? So I see it as a little bit of um, a devotional task to give some of this information to those who aren't as fortunate, because though our language is inherently important to our culture and our shared traditions, as I said, it's a suppressed language. It's language that has long been targeted by oppressors and has been seen as barbaric and primitive and backwards. Uh, and so people tried to stamp it out for many, many generations. And somehow we clung on to it. It never died. It never went away. It went close to extinction at one point, but we brought it back. And it's it's been here all throughout this sordid history of um oppression and suppression. So when we look at um, the Welsh language's history, even in just recent history, and by recent history, I mean like the 1800s, because I have no concept of time. Even in recent history, we have this thing called Brad Achyfrai Glishon, which is the treachery of the blue books. And if anybody wants to learn more about Welsh culture and the trials and tribulations that Welsh culture has undergone, look up the treachery of the blue books. It's essentially a, a manual of how to essentially like destroy Welsh culture as much as they could in order to assimilate the Welsh into British culture. And then we also have the Welsh knot, which is um, probably one that a lot of people are familiar with, but it's something that we were taught about in school. And it was that children, when they went to school in the 1800s, they, wouldn't, they were not allowed to speak Welsh in the classroom. So they were made to wear um, this big, wooden block with the letters WN on it, which stood for Welsh not. And they would pass this big wooden block onto every child who dared speak Welsh in the classroom. And at the end of the day, whoever had this big Welsh, this big Welsh not block was uh, caned tremendously hard in front of all their peers. So it was literally beaten out of children. They weren't allowed to speak the Welsh language. And I remember when I was an edgy teenager, when I was an edgy teen growing up in Wales, because I was fortunate enough to have grown up speaking the language, I remember I hung out in a very kind of nationalist Welsh crowd for a while. And I remember having opinions like, are you really Welsh if you don't speak the Welsh language? Like, imagine a French person saying, I'm French, but I don't speak French. That would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? But for Welsh, it's fine. And I had to really grow up and learn that's not correct because the reason so many communities in Wales do not speak Welsh is not because of a lack of trying or because they're too lazy to learn the language. It's because it was literally beaten out of our generations. And for absolutely generations and generations, uh, our grandparents and our great grandparents were essentially taught this language is primitive, backwards and useless. You will never use it in life there's no point in learning it. And that attitude still exists to this day. All you have to do is go on BBC News on any kind of Facebook or social media page um, on BBC News, BBC Wales News, and find any news article about signs getting replaced with Welsh language words or about places in Wales um, no longer being referred to by their English names, as has happened recently with Erari Snowden and um, Erari Snowdonia and uh, Banai Brecheniog, which is the Brecon Beacons, both of those places in North and South Wales have said, we're no longer going to refer to them as their English names. We're going to refer to them by their native names, which is Erari and Banai Brecheniog. And all you have to do is scroll to the comments. And there are people in those comments who are sh like shouting this vitriol of 
um, there's no point. Welsh is useless. Welsh is dead. There's no use in it at all. This is ridiculous. Waste of money. And you look at those people. They're not all English. A lot of them are Welsh because they've grown up being taught that from their grandparents and from their great grandparents that that's what was taught for so long was there is no use in our culture and our language. Therefore, we must assimilate to being British, to being this uh, overarching idea of this unified British identity. And unfortunately, that means that our language was just swept aside for so long. So to me, when I make those videos and I delve into the the, the etymology and I, I beg people <laughs> to learn the pronunciations as best as they can of the gods of Wales, this is what's going on in my head, is this history that we have. And I think back to when I was a silly teenager thinking things like, are you really Welsh if you can't speak Welsh? And I think, God, that's a terrible opinion because there's such a huge historical reason as to why so many do not speak the language. So I try and provide as much as I can as a devotional act of translating things. So for example, on my Patreon, I'll sometimes translate um, old Welsh texts for the, the people who are subscribed to me. And sometimes I will upload documentaries and videos that are available in the Welsh language and I'll add subtitles to them so that people can watch them and can partake in this culture as much as possible. So yeah, the, the YouTube thing, I'm very proud of my YouTube, but it is where I have the least amount of followers and such. So I'm always sad because I feel like a lot of my best work is on there, but hopefully it'll reach the right people. Uh, but yeah. I think that's like a, an academic adjacent thing where like you, people are less excited about the learning part and yet that is always the most important part of whatever we're doing whatever a witch is doing or a person in general right like teaching other people is the most important part even if it's not like the sexiest however i need to have a minute where we talk about cauldrons oh okay <laughs> so across Just looking around my apartment <laughs> How Ooh. many cauldrons do you own? I have not counted. <laughs> I think, That's for the best. <laughs> I think I'm nearing around 150 by now. Um, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's too many, but I'm a bit obsessed. And I have been obsessed since I was very young with cauldrons. I think to me, and I don't think I've said this anywhere, because I made that video for YouTube about my cauldrons, uh, talking about my cauldron hoarding habit. And I didn't really go into it because I'm planning on making another video where I just talk about the history of the cauldron within a Welsh context, like how they were used um, in the distant past by our pre-Christian ancestors. Um, and then also how they were used in Welsh mythology and what they're used for and why they're important, because they're a huge part of our mythology. And to me, I think the cauldron was a little bit of my gateway drug into witchcraft. Because when I think back to when I was a child and I used to tell my teachers, oh, I love witches. I want to be a witch. I want to, you know, be that cackling witch. The image I always had in my mind was a witch crouched over a massive cauldron, throwing all sorts of nasty mm -hmm. things into it. You know, I was saying the other day over on my Twitter, most people, when they watched The Little Mermaid by Disney as a child, they wanted to be Ariel and they played mermaids in their swimming pools and such. I wanted to be Ursula. I wanted to be the massive sea witch who was throwing all these things into her shell cauldron in her lair. I wanted to be that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a big part of my childhood was 
pretending that I had a huge cauldron. I used to steal my mum's plant pots and things and make potions, mix things in the back garden. I remember once I, I stole this massive pot that was in someone's backyard because uh, I lived in an area where, you know, you could just jump into someone's backyard and not get killed because everyone knew everyone. And I stole this massive plant pot and I took it into behind my house. There was this huge field, huge open field. And I took it up to the corner of the field where there was this tree that we built a den in. And I put it there and I filled it with water and I just mixed in all these leaves and things. And I had my two friends and we'd like peer over the cauldron and we'd make ourselves little fake nails and things. And we'd pretend that we were the witches from Macbeth and things like that. And we'd recite the double, double toil and trouble. So to me, the image of the witch has always been so deeply immersed in the imagery and aesthetic of the cauldron as well. And then, of course, coming to Welsh witchery, coming to more a, a more Welsh idea of witchcraft and magic, we then have Ceridwen, who is literally the goddess of inspiration and witchcraft and magic. And she has a massive fuck-off cauldron. So, of course, like, cauldrons are such a huge part of our culture. And throughout mythology, you see these cauldrons playing a huge role. You've got the cauldron of rebirth, the Pyr Dadeni, which is a cauldron that can bring back the dead, but they're not fully back, so they can't speak and they're a shell of their former selves. You have another cauldron which is said will not boil for a coward, so it's an initiatory cauldron that um, will not boil for a coward, so heroes would go up to it and put their food in, and if the cauldron didn't boil, they're too cowardly to be heroes. And it was a huge like initiation for knights and heroes back then. And then you have the cauldron of inspiration, Keritwen's cauldron, which again is another initiatory cauldron because it spurs you into this new level of existence where you are touched by the awen, by divine inspiration. And that cauldron became intensely important to the bardic tradition, where the bards sang that their inspiration came first and foremost from the other world, from Anovan, and then passed through the cauldron of Keritwen before entering into our world so that they could breathe it in. And as they breathed it in, they could then form it, formulate it into words, which was inspiration and magic. So we have these cauldrons that are insanely important. And so it's no wonder, really, <laughs> I'm a little cauldron obsessed and I'm looking around my room and I've got cauldrons in every nook and cranny of all different sizes. They're everywhere. <laughs> and I think, you know, there's this association of witches kind of like being hoarders, which like, re let's be honest with each other, like hoarders, not a nice word. When I'm called a hoarder, I'm like, damn, I should fix my shit. Um, so for <laughs> me, the way you talk about the cauldrons, it's sort of like, yeah, maybe you're hoarding cauldrons, but like, there's no shame attached to that. And I think that that's really powerful as well, because like my jars are in a box under the bed and I pretend that they're not all there, but you're like, no, I have all of these cauldrons and they're here and they're visible and they're important. Oh yes. I, I think every cauldron that I own is on display in some manner. I've got one that I'm using as a fruit bowl, which is probably not the best use, but it's there. <laughs> and then um, it's there's some... Some of them are hung up on the roof so that they're just there for me to look at. Others have plants in them and <laughs> I just use them for all sorts of different things. But a lot of them are used in my magic and uh, they're very useful, especially because I, I am a very communal witch. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of community based activities, whether that is, you know, something as broad as going on television, which 
is is fun. So it's nice to have a prop cauldron for those instances, mm-hmm. but also community based events where I run, um, you know, uh, all sorts of rituals and rites. And I'm also a celebrant. So I marry people or hand fast people. I don't marry people, but I hand fast people and I do ceremonies of um, rebirth and renewal for people who are, say, like stepping into their new identity. So having all these cauldrons that I can use for different events is also very, very useful. But I was talking to someone the other day about this, this idea of being a bit of a witchy hoarder. And I I remember saying, I think a little bit of it comes from the fact that I used to be quite the sea witch. I used to grow up by the coast. And one of my favorite activities used to be going down to the coast to dip in all the little rock pools and all the little coves along the coastal path and I used to collect things like rocks and feathers and and driftwood and sea glass and shells Uh, and you know it was just amazing to go into these places and just gather like a little magpie gathering as much as I could and nowadays because I don't live next to the beach the closest thing I have to going to the beach and finding treasures is going to the thrift store and finding treasures there instead so I've kind of just replaced the beach with thrift stores and cauldrons instead of shells and rocks but I do still do the shells and rocks when I go to the beach too so it's something that seems to be just ingrained into a lot of us and a lot of it's useful that's the good thing. <laughs> yeah. So before we talk about the lands, I wanted to go back to what you had mentioned. We're talking about language, right? Um, my father's family came from Puerto Rico and it's a colony of the U.S. still. And there was a long time when they tried to just have them not speak English, not speak Spanish, only speak English. And then when they moved here, a lot of Puerto Ricans decided we cannot show our children Spanish. But my father married a Cuban woman who was like, oh, the kids got to learn Spanish. So I did. But I did grow up also having that feeling of how could you be Hispanic and not know Spanish? Mm -hmm. And for me now, it's become how could I be so proud of my island when I don't know how to speak Arawak? Like when it comes right down to what Spanish is in our language, you know, Spanish is something that was given to us was we were forced to learn Spanish and then eventually forced to not speak Spanish. And then we have, you know, so I'm like in a quest to try to learn a little bit of Arawak um, because they're trying to recreate what they spoke. So, you know, the whole, I love the idea of like just listening to you talk about etymology of words when it comes to Welsh. Like it's just, it's important. It's like, you know, it's how we all communicate and however we can communicate is, is a good thing. But I just wanted to mention that, that I felt, I felt like a connection there when you mentioned that about not being able to speak something because it's, you know, it's wrong. It's what the savages speak, you know, so you've got to speak English, you know. Yeah, exactly. And it's part of my accent. So I often get um, people calling me out on TikTok and anywhere else that I do videos saying, well, you can't be Welsh because listen to your voice. Like you don't sound Welsh, you sound English. And a lot of my accent comes from shame, comes from the fact that I did grow up with a very, very strong Welsh accent, but I associated the Welsh accent in my head with lack of intelligence, with backwards thinking, um, with, you know, this idea of, like I was saying, the idea that had been pushed about what it meant to be Welsh and the Welsh language in general, that it's useless and ridiculous. So I remember being like 12 or 13 years old, and I used to watch uh, videos on um, the computer down on my little family, you know, when we used to have the massive computers. Back in the with day. The, yeah, the massive computers, and we'd have one in the entire house. I used to sit there, and on a very early version of YouTube, I used to watch um, videos of 
people like Emma Watson and um, in Harry Potter, you know, uh, Hermione Granger. And I used to copy and emulate her accent because in my eyes, that is what intelligence sounded like. Whereas my natural accent is what stupidity sounded like. And that is just so deeply ingrained into you because of this weird colonizing mindset that has been pushed for absolutely generations. And the fact that, you know, I grew up in a Welsh speaking community and still had that um, that mentality. It's insane. Now, I would never um, say that what the Welsh went through is comparable to what other nations went through with colonization. But I do think that what the English did to the Welsh and the Irish and the Scottish was the blueprint for colonization that they then took and they bettered, I suppose, for lack of a better word, and did even worse atrocities then um, to other nations. So they took us and they assimilated us before then going off to assimilate the rest of the world. And it is really a, a sordid part of our history. But even now, like I, I struggle with the whole accent thing because I do get called out and I get people debating whether I'm actually Welsh and all this because of my accent. All I say to those people is, spend five minutes with me when I'm around my mother and suddenly my Welsh accent comes out straight away and I start sounding like this all of a sudden. <laughs> I have to try and fight out of it then because when I'm speaking Welsh uh, fluently with my family, it's very easy to like uh, go back into my Gog accent, we call it, my, my North Whalen accent. But it is a really sad part that like so many nations now because of colonization and such just have this sense of shame surrounding their culture and their language and language is I think so important to a culture. And you talked about how um grew up in a rural area and everybody knew everybody and you you know breaking away but you're also leaving you're, you're leaving all that land and you're going into a city how has your practice changed leaving nature like that and like you said leaving being able to be part of the sea to now you know being in a city where like you said thrift shops is as close as you're going to get so how has oh. your practice been affected it's it's very difficult and I still struggle with it even though it's been probably about four years now since I left Anglesey and moved to the city um, my little I had a bit of a practice run because I went to university but luckily I went to university in a small town so it wasn't quite the same, but still to me going from, so the island that I grew up on is the largest island that's at the very tippy top of North Wales, Anismore on the Isle of Anglesey. And it is a very rural, rural area. So if you were stood in the middle of my village, um, I, I have a few American friends and they always say to me, you know, the British or the, the countries within the UK we have this obsession with living on top of each other. And, and it's very true. So it's like our village is clustered into this one tiny place, mm -hmm. which is very different to American rurality because I have friends who live in rural parts of America and to them, you know, they could have their house and for like a, a radius of about 10 miles, 20 miles around them, there's just nothing. That wasn't quite the case because it's more like the village was mm -hmm. all, but the village is so packed into one place. Um, we had less than I think 1500 people living in the village in total uh, and that was the entirety of us we had one pub and one post office and that was it uh, and then you had to travel an hour to the south to get to the nearest city or an hour to the east to get to the nearest town so for me it was like middle of nowhere but 
butt crack of nowhere literally <laughs> like I couldn't do anything um if you walked for miles upon miles in any direction you would end up either in fields or in the bloody sea you could end up in the sea because it was a coastal village that I grew up on um and when I was a child and when I was a teenager I kind of hated that because I I struggled to make friends and I always thought I'd probably make friends easier if I lived in a larger place where I had access to more people, a variety of people. So I, I spent a lot of my youth alone, um, pottering about, you know, mixing potions, as I said, uh, singing songs to myself and making friends with the trees and the dandelions and the daffodils in the in the land. So that was kind of my upbringing was just being alone. So I I dreamed of, you know, going to the city and being able to being able to buy milk past 4 p.m. was like a huge yeah, luxury. <laughs> yeah. I remember when I moved to university, um uh the university accommodation that I lived in, right behind us, there was this little kind of strip of shops so we had like a, a convenience store which was open until 11 p.m oh my god oh, <laughs> and, no way. Then there was, <laughs> and then there was also like a, a chip shop or a Chinese um takeout place and there was a uh, a subway a subway sandwich <laughs> shop and I lost it I was so excited to have these things so close yeah. to me but it was really hard because I also missed silence of the nighttime. You know, like a lot of people had moved to the university that I went to from London and Manchester and these like big cities in England. And they were absolutely obsessed with the fact that it was so quiet at night in the university accommodation in this small town. But I thought it was noisy as hell because I was used to nothingness, like no cars, nothing just complete silence complete darkness and to me it was too noisy too bright um and a lot of my witchcraft because I've been practicing now since I was a teenager as I said I met my mentors when I was like 13 years old so because I've been practicing from such a young age in such a rural environment a lot of my witchcraft was rooted in rurality so it was really hard adjusting to being the type of witch who could go for a walk in the woods and gather all the herbs that I needed and then walk over to the cliffs that overlooked the sea and perform a ritual and see nobody else mm -hmm. versus now being in a city where the nearest place I could really go to connect to nature was the park. And it's not the same because there's always people there. And no matter what time of day or night you go there, there will be people there. <laughs> and it's it's really difficult. And I had to adjust to that. Um, I am very fortunate in that what I do have here in the city that I now live in and have been living in for four years is that it's a very historic city. Um, so it's been a city since um, Roman times, like pre-Christian Roman times. There is a shrine on the river about 10 minutes down from where I live. Um, there's a shrine to the goddess Minerva. And then if you go in the opposite direction, there's an amphitheater, a, a Roman amphitheater and a shrine to the goddess Nemesis. So we have gods and goddesses here from Roman times. And then there are also some Celtic-ish shrines because the Romans, when they accepted people into their armies, they allowed the Gauls and the Celts to join their army and they brought their gods with them into the Roman army. So then they started building shrines to gods like Tyrannus, which was the Gaulish Celtic god of thunder and lightning and the sky. And so we have things like that as well. Um, so it's kind of this strange Celtic Romano 
city that is right on the Welsh marches, which is on the border between England and Wales. Um, it's a place that the borders have always shifted. So sometimes it's considered Welsh, sometimes it's considered English. And if I walk three minutes down the road that way, I'm in Wales, three minutes up the road that way, I'm in England. Mm -hmm. So it's a very liminal place. Uh, there's a glorious river um, called Dyfrdwy in Welsh. So it has a Welsh name because it runs through Wales and England. And the, the name of the river, Dyfrdwy, uh, it translates to mean the river of two gods or the river of the water gods. So it's almost like um, even just in the name of the river, there was enough there to glean. You know, it's it's a river that's associated with water gods because Dover is the um, name for water in Old Middle Welsh. And then it's Dover or Dwar nowadays in modern Welsh, but it's Dover in the past. Um, and then Dwy is could mean two, so the river of two gods, or it could be just God. Dwy can mean divine as well, so water god or water goddess. So there is like so many associations with gods and goddesses here and so much magic I found within the city itself. And I've had to learn to adjust to acknowledging that magic because as I said right at the beginning of this podcast episode, locality and space and place is very important to my practice. So it was important when I moved that um, I also integrated my practice and my craft to the city and to this landscape, this new landscape that I was walking upon. Because one of the greatest goddesses that I called to and prayed to when I lived back home on Anglesey was a goddess called Mon or Mona. And Mon or Mona is just the name of the island. It's just the name of the literal island. Mm -hmm. And I deified it because the island in my eyes was alive and was our mother. Um, there's an old saying that comes from the 11th century, Mon Mam Cymru Naina Beard, which is just Anglesey, the mother of Wales, the grandmother of the world, because it's an island that's really deeply associated with agriculture. So it feeds Wales and therefore feeds Britain and therefore feeds the world mm -hmm. and so it's this idea that like she is a mother she's a caring mother and I deified her and it was really hard not feeling like I could call to her anymore because I remember thinking to myself it, does it make sense to mm -hmm. call to her here in the city when she's so far away now um, and she's not that far away I could drive a little bit up the coast and I can see her but she's still not the land that I walk upon right now. So it was really important to me to like make that shift to gain the trust and a relationship with the spirits that were here rather than the spirits that were an hour up the road on Anglesey. Mm -hmm. So I've not moved that far away, but I'm still far enough away that I had to change my practice quite drastically. Um, and yeah, it's it's been quite the experience to make those changes really. You mentioned calling on another god, and I wanted to talk about, and here I go, Gwynapnil. Gwynapnil, yeah, quite good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> We're trying. We're trying. When you were first coming to terms with your identity, you say that you called on them. Um, what advice would you have for witches that might be struggling when it comes to their identity? Oh, gosh. When it comes to your identity, this is something that I struggle with on the daily. Um, literally, because today I was talking to my partner, I was having a little mini breakdown with him, because I feel like I've lost a lot of my identity lately, um, these past few weeks, because I have, this is going to sound very whiny, but I promise there's a point to it. But um you know, I've always been among my group of friends and among the people that I've been associated with. I've always been the Welsh witch, 
even when I had Julie, who was my mentor, she never really, she, she acknowledged the spirits of Wales and she was very rooted in her landscape, but she didn't consider herself much of a Welsh witch because she moved to um, Wales from far away. And then Christopher is a druid. He is a witch too, like secretly closeted, <laughs> not, not very closeted, but somewhat closeted. Um, he is a Swinniv. He's a magical practitioner, but people see him as a druid. He's the chief mm-hmm. of the Anglesey Druid Order. And so even among my friends who were Welsh witches, it's always been me that has been the Welsh witch, you know, the one who is obsessed with the Welsh culture and the Welsh forms of folk magic and uh, mythology and magic that I integrate into my practice. I now have a coven and every single member of that coven is a Welsh witch because I'm the one who bloody trained them. <laughs> and <laughs> so you did this to yourself. <laughs> I did. So it's opened up this identity crisis in me because I don't know who I am anymore. Mm-hmm. So there's um, a member of my coven who has this glorious book collection of these rare Welsh texts. And I've always been the one with the w- rare Welsh texts. Mm-hmm. So I was like, hmm he has more books than me I don't know who I am anymore and what my thing is you know and um, what my niche is that I talk about and I have expertise in anymore and though I still see myself as you know their coven leader it's strange Uh, it's a bittersweet feeling of pride when seeing them come into themselves but also this feeling of oh no my thing (laughs) my thing isn't my thing anymore it's a communal thing that I share with all these different people And yeah, it's been sending me on a loop lately. And strangely, sea witchery has been coming back because that was a huge part of my teenage years. As I said, I was obsessed with Ursula from The Little Mermaid as a child. So the minute I became a witch and I started practicing witchcraft, I started dubbing myself a sea witch because Mm -hmm. I lived on the coast, lived right next to the sea. And I used to have a huge interest in marine biology and I wanted to go study marine biology at university, but didn't, didn't end up doing that. Um, so I've been talking to my partner about, oh, do I, do I, you know, pursue that passion now of the sea, uh, even though I live so far away from the sea now? Um, so would it be too difficult? And I've been having these issues, but I've always been, I, I'm, I'm a Gemini, literally. <laughs> I'm a Gemini and I'm very split in my ways. <laughs> literally. I fucking love this. <laughs> so like when throughout my entire life I've struggled with like who am I who who it's why I put that little exercise in my book because it's a huge part of who I am is questioning who am I <laughs> is questioning who exactly I am and what I do and what I can achieve in this world and what does that even mean achieving and oh mm. gosh all these questions um and so I've always questioned who I am and my identity and then also being queer you know having your identity questioned for you as well by the world having people tell you you, you don't know who you are I still remember when I first came out to um, my father, one of his first things that he said to me was, no, you're not. You're not because I know you better than you know yourself. And that messes with your brain when people say things like that to you, that they know you better than you know yourself. And so questioning my identity has always been an integral part of my magic really is magic has always helped me with figuring out my identity. So a lot of, um, my everyday practice involves asking myself why about everything so like um that can be as simple as well I'm going to do a ritual and I'm going to cast a circle why 
why would I cast a circle? What does that mean? Where does that come from? Is that a Wiccan thing? Is it something that's older than Wicca? Why am I doing that? Who taught me to do that? And why am I doing it in this manner? So it can be as simple as questioning the things I do every day, but it can be as deep as going, I'm a witch. Why? <laughs> and going to the root of it. And I've found that the very root of all of these things, really, why am I a witch? Why am I a pagan? Um, well, because it brings me joy. And if it brings me joy, then surely it's good, right? If I'm chasing that joy, if it gives me that spark of inspiration, surely it's good. And the more important aspect of it is that not only does it bring me joy, but it transforms my anxiety and my depression into joy as well. It transforms those aspects of myself because I might be an anxious mess, but I'm a witch. <laughs> so I can transform that into joy then. And I can say to myself, no, I'm a witch. And I stand in that power. And it's not about bypassing the emotions that you're having or trying to, you know, cure your mental health or anything with witchcraft. It's about acknowledging that Sometimes standing in your power and saying, I'm a bloody witch, is enough to empower you to say, maybe these feelings are, you know, smaller than me and lesser than me, and I'm more powerful than those emotions themselves. And so, to me, if I had to answer the question of how to, even though I'm not the best person to ask because I struggle with identity every day, if someone is struggling with their identity, what I would suggest is find joy, no matter what that joy is. At the minute, joy for me is watching Devil Wears Prada and um, Confessions of a Shopaholic on Disney+. Plus. It's giving me joy in the midst of everything that's going on in my life right now, a lot of chaoticness. And so I'm embracing it rather than questioning it. I think whatever brings you joy, as long as you're not hurting someone or as long as you're not causing pain to anyone else in some capacity that you can avoid, then chase that joy and make it so that you are embracing it as much as possible because when you chase joy suddenly that little identity crisis will start to dissipate because you start realizing well this is who I am when I do this it brings me joy so that must be who I am and it's it's yeah it's complicated but Gwyn Gwyn Apnir is a very good god to call upon in that instance as well because Gwyn is a character that I see as a very pure Gemini, and he is associated with the constellation of Gemini as well in Welsh astrology. And he is so loaded with contradiction, which I love. It's another reason I love Welsh fairies as well, because contradiction is at the core of who they are. If you look up Gwynapnydd or fairies, which he rules over supposedly according to Welsh folklore, if you look them up in any book and you find any fact about them, you will find 10 other books that tell you the complete opposite. And that's like who they are. They stand at that liminal crossroads and you will not find like pure canon lore about who they are because you will always find something that contradicts it. So for example, like fairies are said to be vegetarians in the 11th century um, story of Elidorus who goes to live with the fairies for a year. But then you read a story about a uh, midwife who helps a fairy give birth and suddenly they're having a feast of chicken thighs and you're like, oh, mm. they were vegetarians. What happened? <laughs> Same with Gwynapnir. Gwynapnir in the original mythology is this really callous and scary character. He rips people's hearts out and then goes to those people's children and goes, eat that. 
just because, because I want to be a bit of a dick, but not really because he's actually initiating them into something. But still, he does these things that you'd think, oh, that's a bit much, Gwyn. But then in the folklore surrounding him as the king of fairy, he's this really flamboyant and cute character who sits on a golden throne and invites you very sweetly to come eat at his table. He's so full of contradiction. So he's the god, in my eyes, of liminality, of um, contradiction. He's the other world. So he, he represents all that the other world represents, which is, again, loaded with contradiction. And he also is the guardian between things. So betwixt and between. He stands wherever there is that liminal kind of crossroad, whenever you're stuck between two things. So for example, when I was coming out as trans initially, I knew I was trans since I was very, very young, but I held it back because I didn't have a very supportive family unit at that point. But when I finally got the confidence, which strangely was when I was in university and away from my family, I suddenly had this urge of, I don't want to live a lie anymore. I want to be authentic to who I am. And it was him that I turned to because he was there at the crossroads while I was betwixt and between that two modes, those two modes of existence that I was in. I could choose to, to be, to carry on being the person I was before, which was not a very authentic representation of who I was, or I could step into this new world. So I was stood at the crossroads and it was him that came to me. And of course there are other gods and goddesses within other cultures that people can turn to that have these crossroads and liminality connections. My partner's a Hecate devotee and she is very much the embodiment of that as well. So yeah, I, I say like, find what brings you joy and also, just immerse yourself in being at that crossroads and see who comes to you because sometimes a guide will just show up and lead you down the right path in some capacity. I hesitate to let you get away with saying you're not the right person to say this because I think it, I've been reading a lot about Buddhism recently and it's giving very like, um, you know, if you meet the Buddha, kill the Buddha because if you meet somebody who tells you like, oh, I have all the answers, they clearly don't have all the answers. If you don't struggle with identity, you're not the right person to explain how to do that, how to do the grappling because you've never grappled with it. So I think the fact that like you are constantly coming back and saying why and you know what what is the real reason for this is exactly what somebody who's having a similar problem needs to see because otherwise you're just some person being like, oh yeah, just do this and you'll be fine. It's like, you've never done it. We don't know. Yeah, definitely. And it, it can be quite annoying, can't it, when someone on dry land is telling you how not to drown while you're in the water. <laughs> like, but... <laughs> have you tried yoga? I think that'll help. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so what is in the works for you now? We are obsessed with the first book. Notice I say first book because there has to be something else. Um, <laughs> is there anything you can talk about? Um, right now, uh, I can say I've signed a contract with the same publisher, Huellen, um, for my second book. It, um, I won't say too much because I don't think I'm allowed to reveal the title or anything yet, but it's all kind of done. I've got the title. I've got most of the chapters written. Um, it's due to be given in to Huellen not too long from now, which means I need to get myself into book jail or book retreat, I should say, to make it nicer mode at some point to finish it off. All I will say is because of the context of the conversations we've had this evening is that Gwynapniv features a lot in this book and a lot of the things we've spoken about tonight 
um, also feature a lot in the book. So it's still on the same track. It's still something Welsh focused, of course, because it's me, but um, it's it's diving into an element that I slightly looked at in the last book and diving into it with a much greater depth. And I'm very fortunate because one of the editors at Huellen, um, luckily all the people at Huellen are mostly witches and pagans too, the people who edit the books and, you know, do these things. They are also witches and pagans. And I was worried about this book because it's diving into a topic that is very close to my heart, but I was worried, like, is it close to anyone else's heart? Will it speak to people in the same way that, say, Welsh Witchcraft did? And one of the editors at Huellen turned and said, oh my God, this is the book I've been waiting for all my pagan life. So that was a sign to me, like, oh, good. I'm, I'm I'm glad that somebody feels that way because I needed to hear that. So hopefully other people will feel that too. But I will say um, as openly as I can that Gwyn is definitely very important in this book for a very profound reason. So hopefully yes. some people can figure it out from that. <laughs> so excited. Yes, definitely. Is there me anything too. else in the works that you're, that you're doing? And you've been doing a bunch of and conferences. Yeah, at the minute, I'm focusing a lot on um, kind of building my repertoire with people here in the UK. Um, I've been going to a lot of conferences, a lot of events, hoping to make it across the pond at some point to do events in further afield, um, just waiting for an invite, maybe, or two. Do you want to but... stop by? You want to just hang out? You can, like, Absolutely. grab a beer? I mean... <laughs> I would love that. And, yeah, and so we're it's not just even like, kidding. Been... You just tell us <laughs> like seriously yeah <laughs> marvelous so yeah I've just been doing a lot of um kind of work in that area at the minute of going to these conferences giving talks giving workshops um there's a glorious festival in Coventry in the UK that uh, happens twice a year and I'm really obsessed with that because it's such a fun time and it's a new audience because most people there don't know who I am which I love <laughs> because when I go to places like Witchfest uh, in mm-hmm. uh, which is run by the Children of Artemis here in the UK or to um, the Welsh occult conferences. Most people know who I am. So there's this like preconceived notion of who I am. But when I go to new festivals, festivals that are in random places like Coventry, I get to just be and exist. Mm -hmm. And most people have no clue who I am and it's great. (laughs) And yeah, it's fun doing that. So I feel like maybe over the pond, there might be some other places like that too, where people will have no idea who I am and I can introduce myself further. Um, I am working on various little projects off on the side that I'm not sure I can talk about. But beyond that, I'm always working away on my Patreon, always working on my content online, or at least try to. I, I don't get much time these days, but I do do things on Patreon. So, for example, we've just finished a video series on Ariane Rott who is, in my opinion, one of the most misrepresented and misunderstood goddesses within the entire Celtic, even overarching Celtic pantheon. She's the goddess that has been transformed and changed a lot within neo-paganism. So we're doing a series of videos on who actually is Ariane Rod. Um, so if anybody has an interest in Ariane Rod, uh, then come on over. I also did a video all about translations of Welsh myths and legends and which translations are better. And there's like hours and hours of content on there, including Welsh language documentaries that can't be seen anywhere else about magic and witchcraft. So yeah, give myself a little plug there because I do try with my Patreon, even though I'm so like burnt out and Mm -hmm. (laughs) trying to find joy in creating content at the minute is difficult, but I I try. (laughs) 
So where else can people stalk you? So there's the Patreon, you've got YouTube, you're on TikTok. You just mentioned before you were on Twitter. Any place else that people should stalk you? Oh, like I said earlier, venereal disease. Once you've brushed up against me, <laughs> you will find me. Um, so yeah, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter are the main ones. Facebook as well. I have a Facebook, and I know not many people use Facebook these days, but I do tend to just go on a rant on there a lot about things. Um, so I have a public page on there. Uh, I'm mostly everywhere, but I'm like a rash. So <laughs> you'll find me about and around. I'm trying to get back into making TikToks because they are my favorite ones to do, jumping out of bushes or out of... I, I want to challenge myself because I said to my partner, in the same way that I jump out from behind bushes or trees or rocks, I really want to do one where I just jump out of a river. <laughs> Maybe yes. that'll happen. So yeah, I'm hoping to get back into TikTok over the summer. So we'll see about that. But yeah, you can find me pretty much everywhere under Mara Starling or Mara Starling the Welsh Witch. Um, so yeah, find me and I will gladly tell you all about how Welsh women used cheese and tits in their per cursing practices and magical charms and such. Do you have anything else, Gemini, before I make the last comment? No, I am obsessed with you. Uh, and I can't wait to have you back once the second book comes out yes, slash please. before that, if you'd like to just hang out. Um, I just want to get a Gemini squad together. I want to get all of Llewellyn's Gemini authors to make a little. Hey, don't leave me out. You, no, you girl, you're coming. Okay. You're, I won't leave the house without you, but I just want to get all of us together to just cause mischief. Oh my gosh. I would love that. <laughs> You know, my, one of my favorite Huel in Gemini's is Laura Tempest-Sackroff. She's amazing. <laughs> so yes, there is a few of us. I'd love that. And thank you so much for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I'd love to come back when the second book is either about to release or has been released. Either way, either way, I will yeah, accept whatever the rules invitation. are. Yeah, that's yes. when it's happening. <laughs> so before we leave, I just want to say, in your book, I have a quote. If you are reading this from across the sea, I thank you heartily for allowing the magic of the Welsh into your heart and mind. So as we close, I just want to thank you for bringing some of the Welsh here for us to listen to and for spending time with us. It, it really has meant so much to us, really. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much to Mara for taking time to talk with us. This was such a wonderful conversation and we're so excited to be able to share this with our audience. Thank you to Conwin Moore for our amazing intro and outro music. And remember, if you're following the moons, you're following us. Mm -hmm.